Join us in reading 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading from 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 7. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord... We thank you for this time to study this important subject. We thank you, Lord, that you have ordained the rulers of this world not merely to have power and not merely even to have power over all things within their realm, but, Lord, for your people to encourage and benefit and promote, protect your people. We pray, Lord, that this thought, this doctrine would be more clearly understood, and we pray, Lord, that we will act accordingly. We will have confidence and conviction to expect this among ourselves and among those that are in office. We pray, Lord, that your mind would be given to us, that we would have the mind of Christ by the Spirit of Christ working in us. Teach us now during this hour. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our last topic is related to the purpose of government in relation to Christians. Is government supposed to protect Christians? Specifically, Christians. Is government in existence to protect Christians? We saw last time that they certainly are in existence to do the will of God, the will of God in order to protect all of those under their authority, both inside the country from criminals and outside the country from enemies. This is the basic purpose of government. Well, within this will of God to do this, is it also the will of God for government to help specifically Christians? Specifically Christians. We will answer that question. And then once we answer that question, then for what purpose? To what end are they to help Christians? When Christians do receive help, what is it that we should be doing with the freedom and with the power given to us, assigned to us, delegated to us, from God to the government and then to us? What should we do? And the answer to that question, the second question will be to live the quiet life of the gospel, to live a Christian life in tranquility and quietness in order to preach the gospel and also to live according to the will of Christ. That is our basic purpose when the government gives us this freedom. Now, is this in the Bible, or are we just making this up? Well, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. In giving instructions, he says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Let's pause right there. He says, first of all, that he wants us as Christians to pray on behalf of our authorities. Pray on behalf of all kings and those who are in authority. This is the purpose of of our prayers in this context, to pray for them, to petition God on behalf of them, and also here to thank God for them. To thank God, notice it says in verse 1, 
that thanksgivings might also be offered on behalf of what we have in view of our own governments. We are supposed to do this. The Apostle Paul, I think, presents it as first of all because we people, even Christians, have a tendency to disregard governmental officials and to have no concern for them and have no knowledge of them, have nothing to do with them, and even to disdain them as people completely lost and unable without any sensitivity to God, to righteousness, justice, and the Christian cause. This is the human tendency, generally speaking, to look at government that way, but also a Christian temptation to look at government that way. We are not supposed to do that. We are supposed to have a better attitude, a righteous attitude toward the government. Because he's urging us, he says, I urge, first of all, I urge that not only that we pray for them, but we also thank God for them. Thank God for what they do whenever they do it right. Thank God for them. Thank God for the nation in which you live as you compare your nation with other nations. At least we are not like other nations who are in misery, who are in conflict, who are in civil war. We are not as bad and as, as extreme, as impoverished as other nations are. This is another reason to thank God for our rulers. Well, when we have the proper attitude, he starts with the proper attitude, a prayerful attitude, a thankful attitude toward them. He says here that it's to be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. By all men, he is actually meaning the kings and all who are in authority. He means all kinds of men, all sorts of men. Our prayers should be offered on their, uh, for their benefit. Not only do we pray for our peers, our contemporaries, those that we know, those in our family, those on our level, but also on the higher level. Just because they are wealthy, just because they are powerful, does not mean that we should not pray for them. He specifically is targeting our prayers for them, for kings and all who are in authority. Well, if we then have the proper attitude, if we then are prayerful and thankful, if we then understand that even those in high places need the work of God in their life, then the question is, to what end? It tells us right there in verse 2. It tells us, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Right here, we have the answer to both of our questions. Is the government supposed to protect Christians? Is the government supposed to have a particular and special attitude, a favorable attitude toward Christians? All governments. Because even right here in Timothy, Timothy is under the authority of the Roman government, and specifically the government of the city of Ephesus, which was also a pagan, idolatrous, unbelieving, unchristian, anti-Christian, generally speaking in terms of spiritual matters. They were not favorable to Christians. And yet he is told here, the purpose of the Ephesian government, the purpose of the Roman government, what is it? in order that we, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. We. Who are the we? The purpose of the government, their favorability toward us, the we is the Christian church. The we includes the Christians and only the Christians. The Apostle Paul, when he says, in order that we... He's not talking about the unbelieving world. He's talking about the believing world. He's talking about the Christian church. He's talking about the believers, the elect. That's who he's talking about because he's not writing this letter to Timothy so that Timothy might know about other matters outside. He's talking to Timothy, writing to Timothy about how it's supposed to be within the church. So within the church, we are supposed to pray so that we as Christians may lead a tranquil and quiet life. This means that it's not for Christians to expect the government to do things, to have policies, to have laws 
that help and benefit idolaters, pagans, such as Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, communists who are atheistic. The government's purpose is not to support those religions, those philosophies, those ideologies. That's not the purpose of government, according to the Apostle Paul right here. It's in order that we, we Christians, he doesn't mean we Christians and Muslims, we Christians and communists. He doesn't mean that. He means we Christians may lead a tranquil and quiet life. But someone may say, don't we all have the same values? No, we do not. We do not. Let's just look on, on it, uh, at it at, on the moral level. A Christian and a Muslim, they have some overlap in values, but the, the values are not identical so that we can live in harmony in one society. They are not that way, morally speaking. For example, do we Christians believe in female genital mutilation? Well, many Muslims do. They do. Do we want that legalized and rampant? Do you want your daughters to marry a Muslim man? And then once your daughter is pregnant with the Muslim man and then bears uh, a daughter, that in infancy her genitals are mutilated? Do you want that to happen as grandparents? How can we live together then? That would be a heinous thing to do, right? Or what about in Islam, the Arabic race, the Arabic race is considered the supreme race. Islam is absolutely, fundamentally embedded with racism, the Arabic race. So Arabic Muslims disdain black African Muslims. Arabic Muslims disdain white Muslims. Arabic Muslims disdain Iranian or Persian Muslims. That's why they have a fight all the time. They're always at war. The Iranians against all the rest of the Muslims. They also disdain Asians of all sorts. All kinds of other Muslims are not on the same level as the Arabic ones. So when we import that in our nation, do we want racial strife? No. We don't want that. Or let's also take Hinduism. In Hinduism, speaking just on the moral level, not the theological level, but on the moral level. In Hinduism, they believe in the caste system. They believe in a hierarchy. Within Hinduism, those in the upper caste, the highest caste, they are fair-skinned, fair-complexioned. They have that. Those who are go, go lower and at the bottom level, especially the last two or three levels, they are the darkest, even darker than I am even darker than some of the most darkest black Africans. And Hinduism considers them outcasts. They consider them despicable. They don't interact with them. They have laws and they have practices and customs against them. So if we immigrate those from high caste and low caste, from Hinduism, from India or other nations, into the United States, do we want that kind of racial animosity going on in the United States? It's going on. It's happening. It's happening right now if you pay attention to the news. For example, in the tech industry in California, there are lawsuits of low-caste Hindus, lawsuits of many of them fighting against the high-caste Hindus who have managerial positions in the Simi Valley companies, in the tech industry. Lawsuits, why? Because of racial discrimination. They are not treated fairly, whether income, position, attitude, sexual harassment, on and on, these kinds of things happen. Why? Because of this class structure, caste structure brought into the United States. And there are many, many more examples in these other religions how their ethics are antithetical to biblical ethics. Their ethics undermine a peaceful society. Their ethics do not help and support Christian ethics. So what should we pray? We should pray that God works through our authorities to benefit us, to protect us, so that we, our faith, 
is protected and promoted, not other faiths. A Christian should never do that. Because if people are believing in Islam, if they're believing in Hinduism and Buddhism and communism, they will go to hell. And do we not care about their salvation? Do we not care about our own children and grandchildren's salvation? Yes, we do. And if we do, how is it that we could tolerate them thinking in a pluralistic, multicultural way in thinking that people of other religions are just fine and dandy, nothing is wrong with them, I don't need to preach the gospel to them, my son and daughter can go and marry them. When the Bible doesn't teach that, it teaches the very opposite. They are to benefit us. It says, in order that we, in order that we, not we and unbelievers, but in order that we may lead, and this is the second point, in order that we may lead a quiet life. Notice what it says. In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In all godliness and dignity, we are supposed to live a tranquil and quiet life. Not a life of harassment, not a life of persecution. And even from our perspective, we should not be aggressors and agitators either. We are to live a tranquil and quiet life. Nobody harassing us, and we are not to harass others. But in quietness, live this life. And what is the purpose? We're going to come back and explain the quiet life some more. But let's explain the passage further. When we are to live a tranquil and quiet life, it gives us a platform, or when the government allows us to do it, a platform for Right there in verse 2, to live in all godliness and dignity. So if the Bible says this or that is godliness, then we should live that way. If the Bible teaches us what it means to live a dignified life, an honorable life, that's the way we should be living it. But we should not be tormented and persecuted by the government that undermines this. Well, what does it include? Verses 3 and to 7. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He says that it's good and acceptable to do this, to believe this, and to accept this in the sight of God our Savior. If God looks at it as good, then we should. We should not resist it, we should not say this is Paul's opinion. He's saying it's not my opinion. He is saying it's God's opinion or God's view, God's commandment. It's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It's not a cultural injunction here. It's not a cultural commandment here. It's not a temporary one. It is a permanent one because it's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Then what, should, what is God's end and what should be our end? Because in verse 4 he says... He, God, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Desires all men, meaning all kinds of men, all the elect men, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires that. And what is the means of doing so? In this case, he says, by living the tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, which includes preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel in this context, which we have to also say, sometimes the super spiritual, the super spiritual among us, sometimes we say and sometimes we hear, well, if we would only be persecuted, then the gospel would spread. We need to be persecuted, and if we are persecuted, then the gospel will spread. Now, it is true, on occasion, God does use persecution to spread the gospel. For example, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, because of the persecution in Jerusalem, the disciples were scattered outside of Jerusalem and Judea to preach the gospel, so other regions heard the gospel, except the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, right? In Acts chapter 4, this happened. But it doesn't happen all the time. The gospel doesn't spread all the time 
whenever there is persecution and whenever Christians are put to death, if it does spread all the time because of that, then why is it that Elijah the prophet hid? Why is it, why is it that Obadiah, the official of Ahab, hid many of the prophets of the day? Well, why not just be persecuted? And when you're persecuted, that is arrested and put to death, then the gospel is going to spread. But Obadiah didn't do that. Elijah didn't do that. What about Christ our Lord? Was he not on occasion threatened with death, such as John chapter 8? Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But what did Jesus do? But he hid himself and went out of the temple. He hid himself and went out. He escaped persecution until it was his time to die. It doesn't, it, in the Bible, it's not an absolute 100% that whenever you are about to be persecuted, you should just suffer the consequences, do nothing about it. Because here, the apostle is saying, the gospel will spread when you are living a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Because God desires men to be saved by this means. This means, and the means of verse 7 is, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He taught the Gentiles in faith and truth as a preacher and a teacher. We need preachers and teachers to preach and teach the gospel to others. And that is the means by which they will be saved. Everybody needs to know, everybody needs to hear in order to be saved. And whether that is an apostle, whether it's a preacher, a teacher, or just a layman who is a teacher explaining the gospel to somebody else, this is the means. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is the way of salvation. This is what needs to happen. But if you are dead, you can't open your mouth and preach the gospel. Right? But if you are alive, living a quiet life, and sharing the gospel, then you have the ability to announce the gospel, explain the gospel, preach it, so that those who hear can be saved. And verse 5. Notice, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Do you know what kind of a, an astonishing and stunning statement that is? He is telling Timothy in the midst of a pagan culture. He's telling T Timothy in the midst of the Roman Empire where they worship gods, idols, the constellations. They worship the kings, the Caesars, right? They, he's telling Timothy this, that we have to pray that the government permits us to live a tranquil and quiet life to preach the gospel because there's only one God and one mediator the man, Christ Jesus. Christ is the only mediator between men and God. So we need to have the ability to preach it without being molested and tormented by the government. And we have to be able, with this permission, the permission that the pagan gives to the Christian, the permission to then tell the pagan, you are a sinner, you are lost, you will go to hell unless you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Isn't that paradoxical? Because now people will say, people will say, well, you're just expecting favorable status, special status for Christians, as though that's evil. Yes, we are. And we are why? Because right here, 1 Timothy 2 teaches us we're supposed to be that way. So it's the will of God for us to believe that way. And it's the will of God for us to believe that way so that we can freely preach the gospel to others and tell the pagans who have given us permission to open our mouths in front of them that they are going to hell unless they repent and believe the gospel. And who is it going to benefit? It's going to benefit the pagan, the unbeliever, who gave us the permission to open our mouth to tell him that. Who looks at it that way? We're supposed to look at it that way. Yes, you give me freedom, freedom to save your soul. That is the freedom that God expects us to have. 
the freedom to preach for their salvation. And we should not be ashamed. This is the way of the Scriptures. Now, in reference to the quiet life in all godliness, when Christians have forsaken this tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, they end up disobeying God, and they end up preaching a false gospel. They end up disobeying God, and they end up preaching a false gospel. I would like to focus uh, a few more minutes on this subject of verse 2. Leading a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Because it's not just the freedom, but what we do with that freedom. We have spoken of the verbal witness that we must have, but what about the witness of our life, the witness of our character, the witness of what occupies us or preoccupies us in contradistinction to what preoccupies the world and false gospels, false preachers, what preoccupies them? Because when we give attention or when we begin to behave like the false preachers, the false prophets, the false teachers, false pastors, when we behave like them and we support them, we are undermining the gospel. We undermine the gospel and the very purpose of the freedoms that we have. Example. Look, for example, first at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. First, a few warnings or negative examples, and then a few positive examples. Acts chapter 5. This is contrary to the tranquil and quiet life. Acts chapter 5, verse 36. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, and he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now, this Thutis, he is a rebel. He's a revolutionary. He wants to throw off the yoke of the Romans from the Jews. Now, he has a political motivation, but notice what it says there in 36. He claimed to be somebody. He claimed to be somebody, which means he is a self-professed something or another. He was not designate, designated by God or designated in the proper way to do what he was doing. He is just trying to create a revolt against the Romans. And in doing so, he's claiming to be somebody. Look at chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 and verse 9. Acts 8, verse 9. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Claiming to be someone great. Now here, he's not a political rebel, He's a spiritual rebel because he's practicing magic, meaning practicing things like sorcery, witchcraft, divination. This is what he was doing. So he's in the spiritual realm. And what does he do? What does he desire of himself? It says, claiming to be someone great. And they all, verse 10, from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his ma magic arts. Then it explains that he believed, but superficially. And then because his sin came out, Peter the apostle confronts him and rebukes him for his sin. But we see here that this man, Simon, Simon the magician, he claims to be someone great he wants the attention of lots of people. People do give him great attention and call him the great power of God. And he astonishes many people, verse 11, with his trickery. 
He's claiming to be someone great. He's not living a tranquil and quiet life. Look at Galatians 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. Galatians 6, 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Many people think they are something when they are nothing. Nothing in the sight of God. And therefore, if they are nothing in the sight of God, they are just deceiving themselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 6 to 13. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings, so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we, both, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Now, the Corinthians had a dispute with the apostle, and partly because they were listening to false teachers and having divisions among themselves. And he says that when we go beyond what is written, we become arrogant one toward another. And then he t teaches us that everything we have is a gift of God, verse 7. Then he practices some sarcasm. The Apostle Paul practices some sarcasm beginning at verse 8. He calls them rich, are filled. He calls them rich. He calls them kings. But then he says about the apostles, they are last of all, condemned to death, a spectacle to the world, to angels and men. They are fools, but the people, the Corinthians, they're prudent. The, the apostles are weak, but the Corinthians are strong. They are distinguished, but the apostles, they have no honor. And then he says correctly, the kinds of experiences, afflictions that the apostles undergo in verses 11 and 13. Straightforwardly, this is the way of their life. Why is he doing this? Because the Corinthians, with their schisms and divisions in the church, they were pompous, they were proud and arrogant toward one another, and not realizing that their life was not to be filled for, for them to be rich, for them to be treated as kings, for them not to be persecuted, for them not to be considered fools, weak, ignorant. No, it's the very opposite. Amen. To live the Christian life in such a tranquil and quiet way that people look at them and say, look at them, in the sense that they don't have what we have because they're living the simple life. They're living for another reason. They are living for heaven and spiritual things. Examples from the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes for this. The first one is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2. 2.24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. 
This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Eating and drinking, laboring in good labor, comes as a gift from God. And eating and drinking with God, because it's impossible to have true enjoyment of these basic necessities of life without God. And God gives us the ability to enjoy it. Chapter 3, 312, 312 to 14. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Nothing better to, than in life than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime, to eat and drink and labor. It is the gift of God, because whatever God desires of us to do, it's going to remain forever. The will of God remains forever. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2, 17. Ecclesiastes 4.4, Ecclesiastes 4.4-6. And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. The one who is practicing rivalry between himself and his neighbor, this man is not practicing the simple, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. If he is practicing rivalry or if he's lazy, folding his hands and is a sluggard, that's not good either. It's better to have one hand full of rest it's better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Now, this labor, he's talking about the labor of animosity and strife between one and another, not the quiet life. Chapter 5, 518, 518 to 20, Ecclesiastes 5:18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and to and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of of his heart. God has given us few years to do what? To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor. And when we are gifted by God, notice in 19, for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. God gives us this gift of living this simple, quiet life, having enough to eat and drink, working hard, and having contentment and joy in what we do. It's the gift of God. But someone who's anxious, who is contentious, who's always chasing after more and more, he doesn't have this quiet life. He has a stressful life. We have more. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, 7 to 9. Chapter 9, 7 to 9. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white 
all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. There we have it again, eating and drinking. Let your clothes be white, meaning live a godly life. Verse 9, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, meaning your wife, not just any woman, but your wife. Enjoy life with your wife, he's saying here. And this is a reward in life and in the toil that we experience here under the sun. And finally, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person, because God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Lest we think that those passages we just read throughout this book are merely teaching us to be concerned about eating and drinking and enjoying life, he didn't mean it that way. What he meant was live a life free from anxiety, free from tension and stress, chasing after wild dreams and, and accomplishments in order to puff yourself up or in order to be a rival against uh, your, your family, uh, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your son or daughter, your relative, your uncle or aunt. You want to do better than they did because you want to prove yourself in some kind of selfish way, wrong way. No, don't be concerned about anything like that. And even pastors have this tendency that they want to compare themselves with other pastors in the wrong way. You know, that, that, that friend, he graduated with me in seminary, and he has a church of 100. I'm going to find me, me a church of 200 so I can go tell him about it. So on. You know, this is what goes on in the ministry. One comparing himself to another in false ways in order to puff himself up and show himself to be better than the other. And this is what goes on in churches and megachurches. All, all of this is wrong. It's foolishness. It's sin. It's not what God intended. And when we live that way, we are undermining our witness to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Remember, this is the way that is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Another place, Jeremiah chapter 45. Jeremiah chapter 45. Je Jeremiah had an assistant. He had a scribe. His name was Baruch. And Baruch, he was experiencing many of the same trials of Jeremiah. Same trials uh, as Jeremiah, but he began to be anxious about it. He was bewildered about it. Jeremiah 45, verse 1. This is the message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written down these words in a book at Jeremiah's dictation. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, Ah, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and have found no rest. Thus you are to say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am about to tear down. And what I have planted, I am about to uproot. That is, the whole land. But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I am going to bring evil on all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give your life to you as booty in all the places where you may go. He, along with Jeremiah, had to preach this difficult message that there was going to be widespread nationwide destruction. 
exiled by the Babylonians. He had to preach that. But then he came to a point, Baruch came to a point of saying that I am weary with my groaning and have found no rest. Woe is me, he says. He's complaining about his circumstances. And God confirms to him in verse 4, I am going to do what I told you I'm going to do. I'm going to uproot, I'm going to tear down, I'm going to destroy the whole land. But what should your concern be? You, Baruch, what should your concern be? Because in a sense, he's a minister, right? He's a part of the teaching ministry of the nation. In verse 5, but you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Do not seek them. Why is it then that pastors, famous pastors, celebrity pastors, those who, are, those who do have a big name, who have already accomplished that, and then many others who are attempting to develop a big name, riding the wave of a hot topic and becoming popular on the internet, growing churches with all kinds of tricks and gimmicks, ways to attract people to attend their churches so that they can have lots of money and have lots of fame, fame and fortune. Why is it that they are doing that? And when they do that, are they not doing the same kind of temptation that was here with Baruch? The seed of that temptation was here? Of course, he did not act on it, but he was complaining. He says that his circumstances are miserable. But God said to him, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. And what are those great things? Typically, it's fame, fortune, and fun. Love of pleasure. They want fortune and they want fame. They want everybody to know them and to like them. Is this not the common lot or the common uh, way that, that people sin? They want these kinds of things. And here he's taught not to do that. I'll give your life to you as booty. As long as you have that, why are you grasping for all these other things? Don't grope and grasp for anything else. You have your own life. Be content with your own life. Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Here David summarizes our thoughts. He says that we are not to be proud and haughty, not to involve ourselves in great matters, things too difficult for us. Now, of course, he does not mean do not seek for a challenge. What he means here is, are you trying to be the king of the world? Are you trying to be a billionaire? Are you trying to do this and that? Is this the kind of thing that you're grasping for? You want everybody to like you? You're trying to be famous? If you're grasping for things like this, don't do that. These are the great matters or the things that are too difficult. Don't do that. Instead, live a life that has a composed and quieted soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother. A weaned child resting against his mother. This is the way we should be with God and our life. Our hope, O Israel, O Israel is elect Israel. O Israel, redeemed Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. 
This is what we should be living. The government should be promoting this with all people, but especially we Christians should be expecting it and living that way from the government and then from our own people whenever we are talking about matters of life. We shouldn't be contentious. We shouldn't be comparing ourselves with each other and then dominating and being arrogant against each other, but living a humble life, a quiet life, not trying to be somebody great, not trying to get people's attention, not drawing attention to ourselves, but preaching the gospel and living for Christ. Let's be that way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will indeed give us uh, humility. It is very easy, Father, for our flesh to rise up, our flesh to have expectations, our flesh to desire the flattery of men, our flesh to desire things that we think we deserve. But teach us, Lord, not to be that way. Teach us to realize that everything we have is a gift from you and that we should enjoy peace and contentment. With food and covering, with these we shall be content. Knowing that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Teach us, Father, instead that we might be a Christian church that's humble, that's faithful, quiet, raising our families, minding our own business, preaching faithfully your truth. Grant it to us, grant it in the eyes of our officials, and give us peace. In the name of Christ, amen.